Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, and in this episode, we're learning about all things amniotic fluid, what it is, how it's made, how it's measured, what it means if it's high or low, and lots more. Here to discuss and answer some of these questions are two of my favorite birth providers. She is a certified nurse midwife, women's health nurse practitioner, and has her master's in nursing, and also caught our fourth kid, David Calsa. Hello. Thank Welcome you. to the podcast. That Thank was just you. like 10 years ago, but it seems like yesterday to me. Yeah. And he is a maternal fetal medical specialist and obstetrician who has taken care of some of the most high-risk births and pregnancies known to mankind and some run-of-the-mill plain old pregnancy and birth as well. Dr. Emiliano Shavira. Hi. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, I'm really honestly shocked and amazed that both of you made it, <laughs> considering how many babies you run to catch at the drop of a hat, each of you. Yeah, we better make good use of the time. Uh, let's talk about amniotic fluid. What is it? Well, amniotic fluid is a fluid that surrounds the baby inside the uterus. You can picture the uterus as uh, like a muscular sac, and there's a sac within that. It's a, a thin lining that we refer to as the amniotic membranes, and that sac encloses a pool of fluid in which the baby's floating. When does it form? Uh, so the fluid is present from as early as we can visualize the pregnancy. So that's actually the first thing that you'll see on ultrasound is a little gestational sac, which is basically a little tiny pool of fluid. It's the first thing you see before you actually even see the embryo. Oh, cool. So it's right there from the beginning. Right. What's the fluid made from? What part of a person makes fluid? So that um, changes over the course of the pregnancy. Early in the pregnancy, uh, first trimester, perhaps a little beyond, it's not known for certain whether this fluid comes from the mother or comes from the fetus. So some of it may diffuse across the, the amniotic sac from the mother's uterus into the uterine cavity, and some of it may just come across the fetal skin. That's at the beginning? At the beginning. Okay. Yeah, it's the first trimester. Right around... 10 weeks, plus or minus, um, the little fetus's kidneys are beginning to get into a more advanced stage of development where the fetus actually begins to produce urine. And initially, it's a very small quantity, but over the course of the pregnancy, as the baby gets bigger and bigger, the volume of urine gets greater and greater. So as the pregnancy advances toward the midpoint and into the third trimester, most of that fluid is actually fetal urine. There's a small amount that is from the baby's lungs. So in, inside the lungs, there's some fluid that is generated and it flows out through the airway. Some of that fluid the baby swallows and some of the fluid uh, makes its way into the, the uterine cavity. Then there's probably still a small amount of the fluid that just comes across the amniotic membranes, but the bulk of it really is fetal urine. So the baby swallows the fluid from the lungs or the fluid around it? The general amniotic fluid? Both. Both? Yeah. Is that like for hydration or is that just plumbing? <laughs> yeah, it's just plumbing. That's that's the way fluid goes through the system. So, you know, it starts with mom drinking and then fluid gets into the maternal bloodstream and then it makes its way, you know, into the uterus and into the placental vessels and then diffuses across the placenta into the fetal bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And then it enters into the amniotic cavity 
through the baby's kidneys, basically, the baby making urine. So the baby's making urine, surrounding itself with fluid. And at the same time, it's swallowing, and then that's the way the fluid makes its way back out. And some studies uh, looking at this have determined that in the third trimester, the fluid turns over about once a day. Oh, wow. All so it's turning fluid. over rapidly. So a new bath every day. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. I didn't know it was that frequent. Yeah. It's urine therapy. Yeah. 101. Well, there should be a sign on my wife's door because she's a therapist. We can put urine therapy. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Um, what role does the amniotic fluid play for the baby? I mean, now we see what it's made out of, how it gets in there, and how it gets out. Well, it does a lot of things. So um, first of all, it uh, allows the fetus to move. So the, the fetus is not, you know, trapped and enclosed in a tight space, but has this, you know, floating in this pool. And that's very important for the development of limbs and joints and musculature. So, you know, the baby's basically doing water yoga for the duration of the pregnancy. In addition to swallowing the fluid, baby's also breathing it in and out. And How does that work? Because we can't breathe fluid. Well, the fetus can. And it's breathing for a different reason than we breathe. We breathe to get oxygen into the system. And the fetus doesn't do that because the fetus is getting oxygen through the umbilical cord Cord. from the placenta. So this is really just kind of exercising the lung apparatus. So fluid is moving in and out, and it's very important for fluid development. And from abnormal pregnancy states, we can tell you how important it is, there are some pregnancies that for different reasons have the complication of very low or even absent amniotic fluid. And that is incredibly devastating problem for the baby. So you'll see... Because they can't do yoga? Yeah. And uh, And other things. No no one's going to do well if they can't do yoga. Right. So you'll see babies born with very tight limb contractures, joint contractures. Because they can't move around. Right. Because they haven't been able to have normal limb movement. And then the other thing that happens is the lungs are underdeveloped and sometimes to the point where actually it prevents the baby even from being able to survive. So that's the ultimate proof about the importance of the presence of amniotic fluid. Are those babies usually growth restricted? Not usually. So they're full size, but they have limb issues or they can't survive. So they grow and grow and grow until they just stop thriving. Yeah, Uh, they'll be fine during the pregnancy because they're supported by the pregnancy. It's at the time oh, when of birth they come out. that then becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. Can you, because, Debbie, you don't do ultrasounds, right? No. So mm-hmm. I feel like as midwives, you use your hands a lot more than modern-day obstetricians, and you can feel things. So you're trained to feel things, but you also do it every single day. Can you get a sense for fluid by palpation? No. You need Not to. Not really. You can't? No. So you need to have uh, really. A if you, there's to a question or a concern, really need to have an ultrasound. But so, can you not even feel if it's like sort of high, medium, or low? Meaning, my point is, when you're palpating around, do you do yeah. you sometimes feel like, hmm, question mark in my mind as to whether there's enough fluid in here? We should go take a picture, or you can tell from other things. No, no, I wouldn't. That wouldn't pop up in my mind. I mean, you think it would, but. It doesn't. Like sometimes I thought it seemed like the the uterus was really hugging the baby or the baby was so large there wasn't much room for the baby to move. And And they get an ultrasound, there's plenty of fluid. Hmm. Yeah. So really the only way to know is to take a little picture. It's an ultrasound. Yeah. 
All right. We're learning a lot. We're going to take a little commercial break, and we're going to be right back with some more amniotic fluid talk. I have an incredible offer for you for my friends at Needed. An astounding 95% of women aren't meeting their omega-3 needs. Omega-3 fatty acids, especially DHA and EPA, are crucial for both mother and baby. They support brain and eye health, maternal mood, immunity, and much more. But it can be hard to get enough omega-3 from diet alone, especially during pregnancy when many people are averse to eating fish. And if you've ever taken a fish oil pill, you know just how unpleasant that can be. That's why I'm excited to share that my friends at Needed have revolutionized the omega-3 supplement with two different options designed specifically for mamas. An omega-3 powder that blends into smoothies and a pill option that tastes like fresh citrusy bergamot. Both are sustainably sourced from vegan algae, not fish. Both are great options for nausea and sensitive-prone mamas. Needed's Omega-3 powder is delivered in liposomes, nature's very cool way of protecting and delivering Omega-3 just like in breast milk. Needed's Omega-3 is clinically proven to be five times better absorbed than fish oil pills. The powder is mild-tasting, and it pairs great with Needed's prenatal multi-powder and collagen protein powder in a daily smoothie. If powder isn't your thing, Needed's got you covered with those Omega-3 Plus capsules, which have a pleasant citrus flavor. Needed is sharing an awesome pre-order discount just for my listeners. Buy two, get one free on either Omega-3 option, powder or capsules. You can stock up on either one or try them both. With this exclusive discount, use code Code 3Berlin, the number 3Berlin at thisisneeded.com. Put three omega-3s in your cart. Use the code number 3Berlin at thisisneeded.com. Buy two, get one free. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are talking about amniotic fluid with Dr. Emiliano Shavira and midwife David Calsa. Let's talk about measuring fluid because we know a little bit more about what it is, where it comes from, how it gets made, and why it's important, too. Are there different ways to measure? David told us you can't really feel it, so you sort of have to take a look. When you're doing the ultrasound, how do you measure how much fluid there is? Yeah, so there are three general methods for assessing amniotic fluid. So one is just a subjective assessment. You're just kind of looking around, and you're sort of eyeballing it. And you say, well, that looks like a normal amount of fluid, or that looks a little low, or that really looks like a lot of fluid. So just kind of a subjective gross assessment. Sounds really specific. Yeah. There are a couple of uh, other methods that are a little more um, perhaps precise and quantitative. (laughs) What has been used probably more commonly than any other method for many, many years is what's called the amniotic fluid index. AFI. AFI. Now, the AFI... Uh, one of the errors that I see is people trying to calculate an AFI at like, you know, 22 weeks or something. So the way you do an AFI is you divide the mom's belly into four quadrants using the belly button as the midpoint. On both vectors? Right. So that's up and down line right down the middle and a side to side line across the middle and you get four corners basically. This method was developed initially starting at about 28 weeks and beyond. So really, you're only supposed to use an AFI after 28 weeks. And if, I mean, if you think about it, the top of the uterus reaches the belly button in the neighborhood of about 20 weeks, right? 
So it wouldn't make sense. Right. You're only getting... Yeah, you would only have two quadrants. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. um, then you take the ultrasound probe and you look for the deepest pocket of fluid in each corner and you measure the depth of it in centimeters and then you add up the four quadrants. And the, the normal values for an amniotic fluid index are somewhere between five and 24 centimeters. So anywhere in there. Anywhere in there is 24. So like nine is just as normal as 22. Correct. Throughout the whole latter part of the pregnancy? Yeah. Uh, you know, there are tables that, and the fluid volume does increase progressively over the course of the pregnancy till about 36 weeks or so. And then it may begin to decline, um, you know, following that point. That's sort of the normal progression of the fluid dynamic. So you would expect to find more fluid yeah. every couple of weeks. So you you can find tables and nomograms that, you know, define mm-hmm. sort of, you know, your 50th percentile, your 10th, your 95th at different gestational ages. But in general, not really that specific about it and just kind of use this, you know, 5 to 24 as a, as a normal range. And you said there's a third way. Yeah. So the third way is you look around at the fluid all over the uterine cavity and you find the deepest fluid pocket that you can find and you measure that single pocket. If the fluid pocket measures two centimeters or greater, then that's considered a normal amniotic fluid volume. Uh, We've always used this for twins because if you think about it, it wouldn't quite make sense to do an amniotic fluid index for twins because you have two separate sacs. And you can't do the uh, belly button situation for the four quadrants. Right, it just doesn't quite work out. So we've always used the single deepest vertical pocket method for twins. That's also what you would use in any pregnancy, you know, prior to 28 weeks when it's not really appropriate to use the amniotic fluid index. And what's happening now is there's a general trend favoring using the single deepest pocket method instead of the amniotic fluid index. Reason being that the amniotic fluid index probably overdiagnoses low fluid. So if you find these pregnancies where the AFI is four or three, by that method, that's considered abnormal and is very commonly used as an indication to end the pregnancy, induce labor, deliver the baby. And the general thought is we're probably intervening in a lot of pregnancies that are actually you know, doing just fine. Well, hang on. The AFI is not, it doesn't tell you how much fluid is in the sac. It gives you an index. Right. right? So you're taking the big, deepest pocket in each quadrant, adding them together. And that's, so the 5 to 24 is not the total fluid volume. It's just an index. And based on that index, it's like, if you're in this range, we think you're okay. Why is that different than meaning less accurate? It seems on one hand like it would be more accurate because you're looking at all four quadrants mm. versus just the one big... Right deepest pocket? Well, the fundamental assumption is that low fluid is bad, and therefore quantifying how much fluid is there is important. And as it turns out, that fundamental assumption may not be correct. Meaning low fluid may not may not be as bad as we have been trained to believe. No fluid. At the end of pregnancy. At the end of pregnancy. But you said no fluid is bad. I mean, that's just sort of the uh, extreme end of the spectrum. Um, It may be concerning if you can't identify any fluid in the amniotic cavity, but I happen to believe that the general concern about low amniotic fluid is probably a little bit 
more exaggerated than, mm. than what it really should be. Mm. Well, I also have these a, a little bit of a concern about how it's measured, meaning you're kind of looking at pockets of fluid that could squish depending mm-hmm. on the position that sure. mom's in or how you're pressing the transducer against the belly. And you're also looking at a snapshot of fluid that we already talked about that kind of gets made and gets swallowed, get, gets made and gets swallowed. Mm. So how much fluctuation, like if I had a few different people do the same AFI measurement, um, either with different machines or even the same machines, but with mom in slightly different positions or at different times during the same day, is there any indication on how much fluctuation, like how accurate that range would be? Would the measurements still come out the same? Yeah, there's definitely fluctuation that will happen. There's also artifact of taking the measurement, you know, itself. You know, the baby moves and a fluid pocket shifts. And right. so those are factors that reduce the precision and the accuracy of these amniotic fluid assessments. So just sort of to close the loop on the point I was making earlier it's becoming increasingly recognized that if we use the single deepest vertical pocket method, that's going to reduce the number of pregnancies that we diagnose low fluid so that we intervene less often. And it's also been demonstrated that the outcomes are the same. In other words, we're not putting pregnancies at increased risk by switching to the single deepest vertical pocket method. Okay. So for that method, what number is considered normal. Two, uh, two so anything between two and eight centimeters. So if you if you oh. cannot find a single pocket of fluid that measures at least two centimeters, that would be considered oligohydramnios or low fluid. And if there's a single pocket that measures greater than eight centimeters, that's polyhydramnios or excessive amniotic fluid. Okay. And after the next break, we'll talk about maybe some of the things that those can indicate and... Um, if interventions needed, what it would be. I just wonder for, so for home birth clients, do your clients typically get an ultrasound somewhere towards the end? Only if they go to 41, well, they get usually a 20-week ultrasound, mm-hmm. you know, anatomy scan. And then if the baby measures abnormal low or abnormal high two times in a row, mm-hmm. then we'll recommend an ultrasound. In terms of your size measurements? Measuring centimeters, yeah. yeah. And, or if they go to 41 weeks, at 41 weeks, I have them get non-stress tests and usually an AFI. Mm-hmm. Is there, because you can deliver at home in California up until 42 weeks, right? Yes. So is there an AFI reading that would rule somebody out of a home birth or make somebody less of a good um, candidate for home I birth? I just remember one time, and we've been pretty lucky. It's usually always been above five. Mm-hmm. One time a woman, her baby was measuring small and she was only 37 weeks and her AFI came back three, and I remember the doctor said, you've got two days to get her into labor, mm. or else she's coming to the hospital, we're going to induce. Now, that's a whole other podcast. I need to find out the <laughs> two days to get into labor deadline. And it worked. Yeah, I, I need to find out all your <laughs> your little midwifery tricks to, yeah. to do that, but um, we definitely have to come back for that one. All right, let's take a quick break. We're going to be right back with our final part of our conversation about amniotic fluid. <laughs> well, 
Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are talking with midwife Davy Kalsa and Dr. Emilio Shavira about amniotic fluid. You've talked about polyhydramnios and oligohydramnios as being poly, meaning a lot or too much hydramnios. I guess hydro is fluid and amnios is amniotic. And oligo meaning few, so not enough amniotic fluid. Uh, what would it mean? What are the possible reasons why fluid would go higher than the normal range or come down lower than the normal range? Yes, let's say fluid is going low at the end of pregnancy, a common scenario that uh, families tend to run into. Uh, One possibility is that the amniotic sac has ruptured, so fluid is escaping the uterine cavity through the vagina. That's a common scenario. That's one of the first possibilities that you always have to think about. Maybe like a high leak that they don't really notice? Yeah, and and sometimes uh, when you... Can you test for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a series of tests that are done to try to determine whether the fluid that you're seeing from the vagina is actually amniotic fluid. Those mm-hmm. are things you can't really do at home. They're done by, uh, you know, whoever your care provider is. But the other thought about low fluid, uh, some of it is the normal course of pregnancy. We, you know, we talked about there's sort of a peak of amniotic fluid volume, and then there's a gradual decline in the volume of the fluid in the last weeks of pregnancy. So. If you're staying within the generally established normal range, then that's considered to be a, a normal evolution of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So if the fluid drops below that range, there's this old thought in obstetrics that is very deeply entrenched that that is a concerning finding. And the standard management of low amniotic fluid at term is basically to deliver the baby. And the thought process might be this is just a sign the placenta is not functioning as well. It's not delivering enough fluid and then presumably, you know, other nutrients and oxygen. It's not going to be supporting the baby very well anymore. And, it's on its way out. And the risk of stillbirth might be increasing. So we just need to deliver this baby and get the baby off the placenta and start feeding the baby a different way, like breastfeeding or, you know, whatever the method is going to be. So is that a, more, are you saying it's more hypothesis than study-based? Well, there are studies. So this idea has been around for a while, and there were some old studies that did find if the fluid was found to be low, that there was a, a higher incidence of perinatal mortality, meaning either the baby died in utero or shortly after birth. So there were Mm. studies that suggested that the finding of low fluid is a concerning finding and that you're at increased risk of bad things happening to your baby. The problem with old studies is they tended to be very simplistic and unsophisticated, and there are a lot of problems with old studies. One of the problems with these old studies about fluid is they weren't particularly careful about the babies that they included in these studies. Mm. And a lot of the babies that did not do well had other birth defects. So it could be the case that this association that you saw between low fluid and bad outcomes, Mm. it was from the birth defects and not the fluid itself. The fluid was just sort of an incidental finding, in other words. Interesting. Are there newer Um, studies? And so since then, there have been subsequent studies that were more careful about looking at populations of babies where there were no birth defects, the baby's growing fine, the pregnancy appears to be otherwise normal, the fluid starts to fall below, you know, what we have defined as the normal range, and in some of these more modern studies, we have not seen the same association with bad outcomes. Mm. 
However, this notion is so deeply ingrained into our culture, it's very hard to, you know, get ideas like this to disappear. There have also been some studies where they take a group of these women where the amniotic fluid is lower than the normal range, and what we traditionally would have done would be to deliver the babies. And instead of doing that, divide the moms into two groups and take half of them and deliver them, take the other half and continue to follow them and see what happens. And these studies did not show worse outcomes Mm. in the moms that stayed pregnant and waited for labor. Mm. Um, So there is some more recent evidence that kind of calls into this question, the, you know, this, this old dogma that low fluid is dangerous. By itself. By itself. No other indication. Um, So it might be something different if you're talking about a baby that's not growing well and his growth is tricky. That's a different category. And the fluid is low. Um, You know, these newer studies, you know, one of the problems is they're just smaller Mm -hmm. and it's just not enough to kind of overturn this old concept. So, But at the very least, it's food for thought. Yeah, certainly. And I think it's something for us to look into because I think one of the problems we have in general with modern obstetric care is excessive interventions. And I think, you know, looking for ways to safely reduce the amount of interventions that we do is definitely, you know, worthwhile. You know, we do a lot of breach work and I think when the fluid falls to the lower side, uh, as you said, the more fluid there is, so that gives the baby space to move around. So sometimes people come in with a lower fluid level and want to get it up, not because they're worried about being induced, but because they want their baby to have enough room to get head down. Are there any things naturally or medically that are shown or suggested to try to raise the fluid level? They've done some little studies on it. The mother drinks more fluid, more water. So that it's yeah. just regular water? Or? Yeah, correlates to having more on the outer fluid. It's not consistent, mm-hmm. but that's what I would recommend. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of common sense Sure. to a certain degree. Well, because she's going to drink the fluid, then she's going to, you know, the theory is, right, pass some of that extra fluid onto the baby. Yeah. I think if you're a little dehydrated and maybe not drinking as much as you should have been, the fluid volume may decrease a little bit. So if you restore your fluid volume, you'll restore some of the amniotic fluid volume. What I don't think works is to say, I'm going to drink five gallons of water <laughs> and get my amniotic fluid index up to 27. Like I that mean, that wouldn't work. You, it's kind of, you can... You probably could a, never leave the bathroom anyway if you do that. <laughs> five gallons would yeah. <laughs> kill yourself. Yeah. So you, you can sort of have a minor influence, I think, on the fluid, but... So anecdotally, in the office, that's what I tend to see. People who haven't been drinking very much or have been working out a lot without replenishing, sweating a lot without replenishing, and their fluids on the lower side seem to raise it by just drinking... Yeah some more water. But we also sometimes have people come in and they try more extreme things like IV hydration, and it still only brings them up a little bit. So the more fluid that they put in doesn't necessarily correlate. It seems like the body has a set point where it wants it to be. It's regulated. And it's hard for you to override that. Any any other medical things that could be done to try to bring it back up or nothing Um, that you know that works? uh, Yeah. Yeah. And drinking. I mean, a lot of doctors don't agree with that either. That if a woman drinks more, she'll make more fluid. It's, some small studies have shown that, but nothing large. Right. Yeah. And, and again, anecdotally, it seems to be that it could have a factor to a point, could be effective to a point. Well, you know, it's, it, that's something that I do all the time. When I you know, find someone in the office and the fluid is low, 
we have this conversation. I try to be reassuring about it. My personality and my orientation as an obstetric provider is like I kind of want to minimize the number of interventions I do. So usually the first step is we'll do some hydration, and that can be done either IV or just have the mom drink a lot, and then we'll recheck. Mm-hmm. And very often that initial low measurement mm-hmm. has now become normal. Mm-hmm. So I'm finding in, in a lot of cases we don't have to automatically go down the road of you know inducing or delivering the baby. What about the uh, – oh, sorry. So how much do you have a drink? Huh. Um, you know, like a quart? Just not five gallons. That would be ridiculous. Like three. More than she was. R- really? <laughs> no, no I'm joking. you're joking. <laughs> like a quart or a couple of quarts. Yeah, yeah. Or a liter of IV fluid. Right. Right. Exactly. What about the other side? What about when the fluid's measuring on the higher side, yeah. closer to polyhydramnios? A, what does that mean? What could be causing it? And B, right. are there ways to bring it down? Yeah. So it depends on how abnormal it is. So if you're just barely, slightly above what's considered the normal upper limit, which was 24, we said, right? With AFI, yeah. With AFI. So let's say we're talking about 26, 27, something like that. The vast majority of the time, it's really just a normal pregnancy. You happen to be outside the generally accepted range, but there's really nothing going on. So it's like a normal variant. The higher the fluid is, as we're starting to get into the 30s, 40s, 50s, That's more of an indicator that there may be a problem there. So there can be physical, structural problems that the baby has that's causing that. Like um, maybe there's um, the esophagus is underdeveloped, so the baby oh, so they're not, uh, can't swallow fluid oh, normally. So or it's maybe, just building up. Right. Or there could be an obstruction somewhere in the intestine. Same thing. The baby's not able to swallow normally. And sometimes it could be a clue about some other kind of neurologic condition in the baby or some kind of Mm -hmm. syndrome. And the baby maybe is not swallowing normally, not because of a structural defect, but it's more of a behavioral thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. we we see that sometimes. Could it be on the other side that they're producing more than normal? Actually, it can. And that's a very interesting question there. You know, we talked about the role of the amniotic membranes in producing fluid, and there have been some studies looking at certain genes that are involved in the membrane's regulation Mm -hmm. of fluid level, and there have been some abnormalities um, identified there. So there there are probably some pregnancies where there's excess amniotic fluid, and it has to do with the genes that determine how Mm. the membranes regulate the fluid. So definitely things are always more complicated than what we realize and, you know. More complex. More complex. And it's, uh, Mm. it's, it's definitely not the same reason in every pregnancy. So with polyhydramnios towards the end of pregnancy, what's recommended? Um, Usually it's um, antepartum testing is um, recommended. So these are fetal surveillance and it's usually done a couple of times a week. You you have a limited ultrasound just to see what the amniotic fluid volume is. You usually also look at the position of the baby. You may look at some of the behaviors of the baby, like breathing and movement and its tone. And then you connect to the fetal heart rate monitor and listen for about 20 minutes. So that's called a biophysical profile mm-hmm. or a modified biophysical profile. And it's just a, a test of fetal well-being. And... Uh, Sometimes if uh, amniotic fluid volume is significantly increased, that can complicate the delivery in certain ways. One way is that 
uh, it creates a lot more freedom of movement. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) you'll sometimes encounter what we refer to as an unstable fetal eye. One day the baby's head down, one day the baby's lying transversely across the abdomen, one day the baby's Mm -hmm. breech, and every time you look, it's something different. Uh, sometimes in pregnancies where there's polyhydramnios that can trigger preterm labor. So some of these babies will come a little bit earlier. Um, Are you worried about the cord? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's another potential complication that can sometimes, I'd say in a small percentage of cases, but this could be a concern where the membranes rupture and you have a large gush of amniotic fluid exiting out the uterus and flowing out the vagina, particularly if the baby's head is not in the birth canal blocking things. Blocking the cord from coming through. Yeah, the, the cord yeah. can flow out. So so cord prolapse uh, sometimes can be a complication. Which is essentially because if the cord comes through and then the baby comes through, you get compression of the cord and blocking the only oxygen source. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the baby come through is usually a process of several hours. And most of the time, if you have a cord prolapse, once that's identified, you're probably going to be taken for cesarean section pretty immediately. Mm -hmm. I had a couple of years ago a patient come in with fluid that was AFI maybe close to 28. And her OB told her, stop eating fruit and simple carbs or cut back on your fruit and simple carbs. And she did. She was eating a lot of fruit, tons of fruit. Mm. And um, her fluid went down. Don't know if it's connected or not. But subsequently, I've told that story to people who are in the same boat. And again, just anecdotally, it seems to make a difference. Is there any clinical understanding on why that would work? Well, one of the things you think about when you find polyhydramnios is the possibility of the presence of maternal diabetes. And... It's uh, it's just kind of one of those classic teachings, and I don't actually know how strong that association is because I got to tell you, I take care of bajillions of diabetics, and it's really a very small minority that have polyhydramnios. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think the correlation between those two conditions, I, I don't know if it's as strong as what I have been taught. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the other thing that's interesting to me... But these are non-diabetic moms. They're just moms that are eating a lot of sugar. Right. So the question is, if having excess sugar creates, I guess, more fetal pee. It sounds like an area that would be great to study. Oh, I like that. <laughs> um, we're almost out of time, but I, you know, people wonder about amniotic fluid in labor once the water breaks, right? The breaking of the fluid. So at that point, are we worried that it's going to run out? Does it keep getting replenished? Do we care like with every surge there may be more fluid coming through? Um, And then the other side of that is not to do with volume of fluid, but what is the concern once the fluid breaks, why why a clock starts in terms of from that point till till providers like to see the baby come out? For me, there's not a tremendous amount of concern about that scenario. I mean, to me, that's a normal part of what happens during labor. Membranes rupture. The membranes rupture. At some point, it could be earlier in the labor. It could be later in the labor. In rare cases, it may not happen at all. The baby can be born in an intact sac. But in have most labors... Hmm? Have you guys seen that? Mm-hmm. It's rare. The baby but in yeah. the call where they just come out In still. the call, they say it's very auspicious. Yeah, I've actually never seen that in a vaginal birth, that term. Oh, you see it in cesarean births all the time, I suppose. More commonly, but not all the time. It looks kind of funny. 
You know, right. when you p- people put stockings over their heads. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when when I first saw it, it was funny looking. Yeah, I can. I mean, I've seen just pictures online, and uh, yeah, at birth I've seen it where it starts to come out, and then it just right. Yeah. yeah, but to me that's just part of the normal process of labor, and um, usually a certain percentage of the fluid flows out, and there's still some inside the uterus. And it, it'll come out together with the baby at the time of birth. But not always. Some, sometimes it almost all comes out and the baby comes out without a lot of fluid. And in the vast majority of cases, it's just not a problem. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, you might be concerned that, well, this fluid cushion around the baby is no longer there. So as the uterus is contracting and squeezing the baby through the birth canal, maybe you're going to be squeezing the cord yeah. and cutting off the oxygen supply to the baby, but it doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that happens very often. I wouldn't say never, which is why we listen to the fetal heart rate during labor, but it's unusual for that to turn into a problem. To the other side of that question, once the fluid's ruptured, so there's a barrier of protection that's lost from, let's say, microorganisms like bacteria. Is there like a time limit once that water breaks that baby must come out or we're overly concerned? Well, they did a really good study on that years ago in looking at women. When the bag of water broke first and there was no labor and they let women's bodies go into labor naturally. And they found that if the majority of women went into labor by 24 hours and there was not a higher rate of infection. Of course, you can't be doing vaginal exams. Bring in bacteria. Right. And uh, women that waited till 48 hours to go into strong labor, there was a higher rate of infection. Mm-hmm. And then 72 hours, if it took that long, there was a, another higher rate Even of infection. Higher. Yeah, so there is a correlation. But you have to be safe about it. So we have at home, we allow women to stay at home. But if there's no labor, it's pretty strict. There's, uh, there's no vaginal exams, there's no baths, there's no sits baths, there's no sex. Nothing goes in the vagina. Mm-hmm. We don't want anything to push up. You know, there's a lot of bacteria in the woman's vagina. So we haven't had women develop fevers at home that we've had to transport for. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, and you do a lot of babies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and we give it to about 48 hours if she's not in strong labor by 48 hours. And we will use castor oil. To get mm-hmm. her into labor, you know, as a last resort. Oh, you're not getting out of our how to get into labor episode. Well, we will <laughs> transport. And a lot of that is because there's a lot of pressure, you know, sometimes from um, where we're transporting to. Oh, because they're, quote, unquote, backing you up. Well, yeah. And some women have developed fevers. I mean, I've heard about it, of course. And you, you try to bring in a woman that's still healthy and stable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and everybody has a, sort of a different comfort zone. Is yeah. Does the hospital have a rule about it, or is there a medical rule of them? I think that's something that probably a, a hospital, per se, wouldn't have a specific policy about it. It's going to be something really provider to provider. I will say that when we're talking about ruptured membranes, I very often hear patients ask me this 24-hour question. So clearly that idea is out there and it comes from somewhere. It's not necessarily part of my specific practice, but I think if you're, you know, getting obstetric care and you have an OB and your birth plans to deliver in a hospital, you may certainly 
hear things like that, like you need to deliver by such and such time. I don't know that there's any formal guideline anywhere that is a universal requirement that all OBs are supposed to follow. So I I think that's more likely to be kind of a a locally established sort of general practice. I mean, it would make sense that you do sort of monitoring on a case-by-case basis anyway. How is this baby and how is his mother? Yeah. um, So, you know, that's one of the wonderful things about the practice of medicine is the ability to evaluate and use clinical judgment and individualized care. On the other hand, it's not necessarily advantageous for everybody out there to be doing things completely differently Mm -hmm. and there being no common ground anywhere. So there's a lot of movement towards standardization of things and generation of guidelines. And that general movement, I think, is kind of growing and increasing to create protocols and policies Mm -hmm. and procedures for everything. And there are certain ways in which that improves the safety and improves outcomes and limits complications. But another side of it is if that's done in the absence of any kind of clinical judgment and paying attention to the person who's in front of you, and it becomes a thoughtless, one-size-fits-all, factory-line kind of approach, I think that's not desirable. And sometimes, you know, you see that happening. Hmm. Yeah, agreed. And at home, I think we have more flexibility with it because it's a very controlled environment. It's their home. It's They're used to the bacteria that are there. When a woman is having a baby in the hospital, I would say what I hear mostly is that doctors will give them anywhere six to 12 hours and they have to come in and get induced. And because um, when women are planning to have a baby in the hospital, there's, um, you know, a doctor has a lot of patience and he's not really sure what the woman's doing at home all the time. So at home, it's specific. We don't have a lot of patience. We're very strict with do this, don't do this, let's keep it safe, take your temperature every two hours. So it's, it's more controlled that way. So in There's some ways, guidance. I would say you have fewer patients, but more patience. <laughs> patience pays. <laughs> they say patience pays or you become the patient. Ooh, what good is a doctor with no patience? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this was a pretty thorough conversation on amniotic fluid. And I thank both of you for being here and sharing your expertise and your experience with us. Our conversations aren't medical advice, so always go ahead and talk to your provider and uh, make a well-informed choice together with them. Uh, At home, thanks for listening. And to learn more about clinical topics like these, you can find our blog and other media online all the time at informedpregnancy.com. 